Welcome to Season 3 of Summer Reading with the Deals. We are so excited to be back with our listeners, most of whom we know, but some of whom we don't. Uh, If you've listened to Season 1, you know that we talked about Absalom, Absalom by William Faulkner, and Season 2 was the short story collection, Everything That Rises Must Converge, by Flannery O'Connor, and uh, (laughs) we have promised it... uh, at the end of season one and the end of season two, and here we are uh, following through on that promise. Season three of Summer Reading with the Deals is going to be The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. So um, we're going to talk in this first episode about what is this novel. So what is it, and consequentially, why did we pick it? Um, and, And over the course of 10 episodes, we're going to talk about uh, various characters, obviously the three brothers, Karamazov, and we might talk about Smerdyakov as a brother as well. Um, but we'll also talk about um, the fathers, so the the literal father, Fyodor Dostoevsky, Pavlovich Karamazov, and the spiritual father, Father Zosima. And we will talk about the women in the novel, and we will talk about the memorable scenes in the novel. So probably the most famous scene in this novel is the Grand Inquisitor. It's probably been anthologized thousands of times. Um, but really, it, it's famous because it's, it's um, I guess it's, it's putting forth an argument from one of the main characters um, that's basically saying, would the world be better off without Christ ever having... Uh, come to earth and teaching and uh, living a perfect life and dying on the cross and resurrecting. Um, and so it's, I guess it's an, an exercise in philosophy um, because it's, you know, it's, it's impossible to erase it now. It, he changed the world. We still, you know, in the year 2022, we're counting time by his, his existence on earth. And so, um, so uh, that's, probably the most famous scene, but there's several really memorable scenes, so we'll do an episode just about that one and, and several others, and then I'm going to have to open up my <laughs> my document to see what was our other idea. Um, it, whoops, um, it was, um, it's not opening, um, we have another one, I just can't get the document to open. So anyways, it's going to be 10 episodes total, and the final one we'll just talk about the, just our conclusions about the novel and, and really like the last major scenes of the novel, um, the trial, and then um, the, I guess the final chapter, we'll probably talk a lot about that because it really, I guess it, it, it crystallizes the ideas of the novel. So um, so Whitney, let, let's just get it, get it rolling what is this novel? I have so many ideas about what this novel is. I jotted them down on an envelope the other day when I was <laughs> sitting in my car. Um, and there's so many of them. And I was using a crayon because I have crayons in my um, pocketbook because of our daughter Josephine. So I have a crayon list that, <laughs> that I'm looking over. Um, I, one thing we could talk about that seems important, you just mentioned the fact that the Grand Inquisitor chapter is a exercise in philosophy or a thought experiment. Um, in some ways, this novel is also a novel of ideas or a novel in which 
a, a philosophical idea or really in this novel quite a few philo- philosophical ideas are explored um, often in a novel of ideas characters will live out mm-hmm. a philosophy or more than one and um, either give a model of it if it's the philosophy that the writer approves or maybe show the potential for ugliness and, you know, kind of dystopia or destruction from those ideas. And I think this novel does that for sure. Um, You've got, well, for one example that is very obvious is Ivan, his ideas about Christ, his ideas about immortality um, have lead him to make, ugly decisions that he ultimately can't live with um, and can't face. Um, But there's actually quite a few ways in which this could be considered a novel of ideas, thinking through certain ideas to the actions and the end results and what those look like. So I could get into what more of those ideas are. And we'll do that in just a second. So so you mentioned this idea of like bringing ideas to life. And so um, in a way, it's almost like an allegory. Uh, Dimitri is, is the, the personification of uh, the emotional man, the romantic ideal, someone that is just um, uninhibited, someone that lives, uh, you know, an Epicurean life, like always seeking out pleasure and... Um, I guess he, you know, he represents one uh, dominant philosophy of the 19th century. And then Ivan or Ivan, <laughs> we're going to call him Ivan because Whitney taught someone named Ivan who was Russian. And so we're just, he pronounced it Ivan. We're going to pronounce it Ivan. Um, Ivan is, I guess, the, uh, the, the intellectual man. I mean, how would you describe, like, what, what is he the personification of? Yeah, I mean, I think he trusts his reason. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually would say that one key idea of this whole work is that you can't trust your reason mm-hmm. so much, that human beings are not entirely rational, that human reason is limited so that we can't understand everything that's happening and then judge it accurately. Um, he trusts his reason. He has a, a strong mind, and he's intellectual, he's talented, he trusts his reason and says, I can't make sense of God existing for several different reasons. And therefore, he's intelligent enough to go to the end result of that and say, okay, if there is no God, no accountability, no immortality, where you're going to be facing consequences of your actions, if you're just a material being, the logical thing to do is to live for yourself and do what occurs to you. And even murder could be justified if the person you're murdering is bad or a problem or really for any reason at all. Um, a lot of people who lived when this book was being written um, young people who were educated were going down the same intellectual path as Ivan. There were people trying to assassinate 
the Tsar and also lots of other major figures and often succeeding because they believe that the ends justify the means. This kind of utilitarian um, reason-inspired morality, which ends up, in Dostoevsky's view, being no morality at all. Right. Because, as you're bringing up, Ivan's philosophy is if there is no God, then everything is permissible. And the only the only uh, like check and balance for that is that everything is permissible as long as you can get away with it. Like there's still there is still some level of punishment for some crimes even in a, a godless society. But if you can get away with it, if there's no God, then you have no reason to have a conscience that would, um, you know, that would that would um, speak against that that evil or, or destruction or, or, like you're saying, murder. And Dostoevsky contends that conscience is real and it's a powerful force. So you might believe in your intellect that there's no reason to feel guilty about this or that, yet we do, yet we are haunted by conscience. Um, that's one thing we see play out in Ivan. Um, Father Zosima tells him that he is going to suffer because he can't fully commit to non-belief and a lack of conscience and the the kind of logical consequences of the belief system that he's chosen. He can't fully commit because his conscience haunts him. The flip side of that, though, that's interesting is there was this novel that came out um, maybe like a decade before this novel was written, that was really influential and famous in Russia called What is to be Done? Um, and that novel basically proposes that people can be completely rational. It's like a utopian novel about if people just started being completely rational, what would that look like? And the vision that it has for being completely rational is that well, I'll just actually read you a quotation from um, the biography of Dostoevsky that I'm reading, which is called Dostoevsky, A Writer in His Time by Joseph Frank. I'm not reading the enormous five or six volume version of it. I'm reading the slightly less enormous, like 900 page, one volume book. But um, yeah, it's discussing this book called What is to be Done, which was, you know, the sensation influenced a lot of young people. And there's a love triangle in the book. And it says, since the characters follow the precepts of rational egoism, basically that you use your reason and just do what would be best for you, um, they are able to untie the woefully tangled love knot without a quiver of the outdated romantic melancholy that undoes characters in other novels, or even a trace of such primitive emotions as resentment or jealousy. Um, Dostoevsky felt that that was completely unrealistic, that people's emotions could completely stay calm and rational and disentangled. And so in The Brothers K, he shows characters, even Ivan, who is the sort of symbol of rational thought. He can't overcome his emotions. He develops this severe illness because mm. his emotions are so extreme even he can't think rationally all the time um 
and utilitarianism, which was just very influential and popular at this time, would say just identify what's going to benefit the largest number of people and then do that and then don't feel guilty about it because the ends justify the means and that's just rational and there's no inherent morality. So by that argument, you could assassinate the Tsar of Russia or you could kill or have your lackey, Smirnikov, kill your father because he's a terrible person and he causes people a lot of suffering. And, like, why is such a man in the world, mm. <laughs> as Dimitri says. Um, why is such a man alive? Yeah. <laughs> There's a certain utilitarian logic to it. If Fyodor Pavlovich wasn't made in the image of God and didn't have any inherent value and he's really just kind of making the world a worse place, what does it matter if someone murders him? Yet it does matter in this novel. So you, you're bringing up a lot of things, uh, which if you have not read a page of this novel, I think <clears throat> very similar to a lot of literary works, the main reason to read it is not to see what happens. It's to be moved, hopefully emotionally, intellectually, and spiritually by the characters, the themes, the, I guess, the plot, um, and, and get you to think and reflect. And, and, you know, Whitney and I both teach literature, so one of the things that we try to do when we're picking literary works is, like, what lessons can this work teach people, either by example or by, um, like, as a warning? Like, don't be like this character. Um, and sometimes, sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, so speaking of characters, I'm just going to give a, a brief rundown of the characters because there are going to be so many characters we're going to talk about. And I think the main thing to remember as you're either reading this or if you've already read it, just, you know, the design of the novel is so complex. But it really boils down to this, the, the title. You know, we'll talk about the, the significance of the title, um, to, to be really articulate about it, uh, in the final episode. But the brothers Karamazov implies that there's a parentage to the Karamazovs. So, like Whitney mentioned, Fyodor uh, Pavlovich is the father. So, um, he's one of the main characters. Um, each of the sons is a main character. I would even say Smerdyakov is a main character in a way. Um, so... Uh, Dimitri, as we're going to get into in the Dimitri episode, has a mother who dies pretty young. Um, and then uh, Ivan and Alyosha are children from another mother. So, <coughs> excuse me. So, um, those, are the, those are the three principal brothers. And then Smerdyakov is actually a child by a character named Stinking Lizaveta who dies. Uh, before the action of the novel. So really, Fyodor has has got three legitimate children and a fourth mm, dubiously legitimate uh, child, and, and they they don't treat him as a brother or as, as an equal, or, or, or Fyodor doesn't really t- treat him as uh, a legitimate son, but we will talk about how Fyodor treats him um, because I do think that there is some some level of father-son relationship to them. Um, but really, that's, that's kind of the central core of the novel. So 
um, Theodore has Grigory and uh, what, is, what is Grigory's wife's name? Um, is it Maria? Mar- Marfa. Marfa. <clears throat> um, Marfa Ignatievna um, Kutuzov. Kutsuk- Kuts- so, anyways, Grigory and, and Marfa. So they're the servants of the house, and they adopt uh, Smerdyakov. So that really, if you're thinking of it in terms of, um, you know, a nucleus of, of that that line, I would actually say Smerdyakov is the is the center, and then those two characters go along with him. If you're making some sort of geneogram or something, so um, I start with him because really they're the least important in terms of like page numbers and so um really just like keep those people in your mind and then the three brothers are are the central ones and so dimitri has a pretty extensive family tree so to speak in terms of the characters that are connected to him the the chief characters that are connected to dimitri are um katerina ivanovna no sorry yeah did i say that right um, mm-hmm. Yeah, Katerina that? Ivanovna. We'll go ahead and apologize <coughs> that we don't know Russian. Our Russian pronunciation is, you know, that of two Southern Americans. <laughs> Although we have watched the Americans, so, um, so they, you know, they have plenty of Russian characters on that. Katerina Ivanovna Verkostev. I don't know if I said that right, but Katerina Ivanovna. So, so she is one of the the women that uh, Dimitri or Mitya, also, by the way, each character has n- name, um, nicknames, I guess, I don't know what else to call them, um, diminutives of their names. And so in Russian culture, uh, if you don't know someone personally, you would never call Dimitri Mitya because that would be like calling me Big A or something like that. Like, like that's what my mom calls me. Even though I'm almost 40, she still calls me Big A, or now she calls me Daddy Big A. So um, <laughs> so I've been, you know, Big A since I was a little baby, and here I still am. So, um, and of course, <laughs> no one else calls me that except for my mom. But uh, that's a good example of, like, the, the level of familiarity and, and nicknames that come with this novel and really every Russian novel. So, um, so don't, let, don't let that intimidate you if you're reading. Uh, and if you have read, of course, you know this. You've made it through the, the cauldron uh, unscathed. So, um, Just jot down some notes in the front of your book yes, about yes. who's who. I, that's what I did the first time. Like, oh, okay, you know, this is also going to be Mitya. This is also going to be, like, every time yes. I realized that someone was Mitka. being called a slightly different name, um, that does help. And it just, if you just bear with it, it gets easier as the book goes on as you get familiar with the characters. So I would say just don't don't panic if you feel confused at first. That's what I'll tell my students when I, I'm going to make my students in AP Lit read this book or at least some really big portions of this book. That's what I'm going to tell them. Be patient with yourself. Ask for clarification when needed. And I think just like we're doing now, really commit your mind to the, the names and the list of characters because 
I mean, I've got, I don't know, it's probably about 30 characters in my list. Um, but within Dimitri's character tree, there's Katerina Ivanovna, and now she has a household servant whose name escapes me. I, is it? Finya. Finya. Um, the fact that we can't remember these minor names is just indicative of the fact that like I've read this book twice and I've listened to a, a big chunk of it on audiobook a third time. It's really okay to not be able to remember a minor character's name. Yeah. It, like don't panic because you see a name and you're like, who is that? It's really okay. Yeah. Just look back at the character list if you want to. But the, ch- the, the biggest one to, to point out now is Grushinka. So her name is Agrafina Alexandrovna Svetlov. They literally don't even mention her last name until the trial, <laughs> which is like 700 pages in. And so um, Grushinka is Alexand- uh, sorry, Agrafina Alexandrovna, but she's almost always referred to as Grushinka. And, and so if you ever see a double A name, that's, that's who that is. It's Grushinka. It's the other woman. Uh, that that Dimitri is interested in. Can I just jump in and say, I think it's actually more significant than we can understand um, these slight variations of the name. We would understand it more if we were reading a novel in the contemporary world in America when people had these little nicknames, like what the tone of the nickname was, if it was more like endearing or funny or, or how close the people were based on the nickname being given and the, the form of the name being given and things like that. So, um, Grushinka is called Grushinka by almost everyone. Right, like, right. I was just re-listening to the early scenes where people who really don't know her are talking about her and they're still calling her Grushinka or that woman. I think that she's being given this familiar kind of nickname by everyone because she's not respected because she's like a fallen woman, whereas Katarina Ivanovna is always called this more formal version of her name because she's very respected. In fact, she makes a point of making sure everyone respects her. It's yes. like a key part of her personality. I think there are going to be things that you and I just don't understand about the subtleties of these names, but there is a reason why... Dostoevsky and other Russian writers use so many variations on a name because they have these shadings of emotion and judgment and um, significance in Russian. Right, and 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 they convey relationship in a way that we we just have a shade of that in in English. Um, so I mentioned Grushinka because, like I said, if she's referred to as Agrafina Alexandrovna, it's like, how did they get Grushinka out of that? But that's how they did. Um, so, so those are the two principal women in Dmitri's world, um, one of whom, Katerina Ivanovna, is his fiance, and Grushinka is the one that he desperately wants to win. And, of course, that's where he overlaps with his father, Dmi- uh, his father, Fyodor Pavlovich, um, which, by the way, Dmitry Fyodorovich, like your middle name is your father's name. I think they call it the patronymic. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it's um, like, for example, 
Katerina Ivanovna, her father's name would have been Ivan. Mm-hmm. And that's just feminized. Ovna for woman and yeah, right. Ovna, for yeah, men. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so that's, that's something you pick up on pretty quickly. It's, it's not as intimidating, you know, as some of these other things about the names. And, of course, like we're saying, we're 21st century Americans, and we're trying to understand a 19th century novel by a Russian uh, and we've never been to Russia, so. It'd be kind of cool if it said, like, Katerina, daughter of Ivan. For us, that would sound cool. It would not really be accurate to how it would feel to a Russian to be saying that, I guess. But that's what it is. But you bring up another good point, which is as many names as there are in this book, there are a lot of overlapping names. So, for example, Fyodor Dostoevsky, Fyodor Pavlovich, Karamazov, um, they're just a certain number of names that Dostoevsky likes to use. And so some of them, like, for example, Katerina Ivanovna's father is not a character in the novel, but his name is Ivan the same way as mm-hmm. Ivan Karamazov. So, and there's a character in um, Notes from Underground named Katerina Ivanovna, mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure. Like, But there's this very limited stable of given names and. Russian. I think maybe because they have to be named after saints in the Orthodox Church, or that you don't have to be, but like you would want to be and have like a name day that's the Saints Day and everything. And there's just only so many saints in the Russian Orthodox Church. So, so that's I guess that's the the principal women for Dmitri, and then he's going to have people that connect to those women, um, and yet again they're going to overlap. So, like we said, Fyodor Pavlovich, the father is also pursuing Grushinka. So the whole, like, you're interested in the same person that your dad is, that's very unusual, and that, that, that creates what I would call the central conflict, like, the central conflict that involves Dimitri and, Fe- and Fyodor is Grushinka, and then the money involved with wooing Grushinka is is intertwined with that, which, of course, also involves um, inheritance and what, you know, Dimitri being the firstborn. Um, there's a lot of, of that that we'll get into in future episodes. But, but that's kind of, I guess, that, that's what is so interesting about this novel is there's so many overlapping storylines that at first, it's it's just kind of overwhelming how many characters and and stories and things you get. And then at the at the very end of the trial, there's almost a recap of the whole book, at least at least the things that involve Dimitri. And so, um, it's it's really beautiful how you understand it so much better at the end than you do as you as you're going through. Um, it's Dusty- just oh sorry, I was just gonna say it's just a, a sign that Dostoevsky. In, in this novel, which is his final novel before he died, um, he had really mastered that ability to um, almost plant the seeds and, 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 and get the best harvest out of it. He liked to have his um, subplots and minor plots and minor incidents and characters um, be mirrors or recapitulations in different terms of the main themes and ideas he was exploring so we can talk about how he manages that with all these little byways and I think that's actually one of the the things that I look for in a real masterful novel Mm -hmm. 
when all the it's like a, an orchestra where each character and situation is playing its part, but it it all coheres. And it's really incredible to me that he did that, and so many uh, 19th century writers did that through the medium of serial publication. Like he was publishing this novel, he was writing it and then publishing an installment and then writing and then publishing an installment. So he couldn't go back and change something if he got, his vision sort of started shifting around. So he was a big planner. He wrote these notebooks and notebooks and notebooks for his novels where he would jot down ideas and ideas and ideas and then winnow it down and then change the plan. But you can tell he did put a lot of forethought into this before he ever started writing because it does, I think it, it's so complex, but then the more you think about it, you're like, oh, I see how this echoes this in this harmonic way. So, so that's kind of Dimitri's world. And then, of course, there are other people involved in, like, for example, the party that he throws right after um, his father gets murdered. Um, and so there are a ton of people at that party. They're connected to Grushinka. And then he also interacts with different people trying to get money. And one of the main ones that he tries to, to get money from is uh, Katerina Osip- Osipovna Kol- Koklakov, who has a daughter named... Lisa or Liza, who's also who's also called Lisa. Um, so, yet again, another big character overlap. Alyosha connects to this family as well, and so and, and Ivan does, and so small town vibes. Yeah, small. In this yeah, story. It's a small village, <laughs> and it and it's weird because it's a small village, but nobody works. It never seems like anybody has a job to go to, you know, except for Alyosha is training to be a monk. So he's like technically at work when he's at the monastery. That's the class of people we're working with. These are like gentry types or nobility. People that make their money off of investments rather than um, physical labor or even, even intellectual labor. And they own land, like even the Koklikovs own like a country estate. I think they're in town for a week initially to look after some details about their estate, and then they just end up staying because Lisa's sick and right. et cetera. So uh, because Lisa's Lisa or Liza is is sick, they go to the monastery, and they want to see if Father Father Zosima can uh, orchestrate a miracle for her to be healed. So there's another connection to the Alyosha world, um, and that's actually the the first significant like coming together of the characters. I guess is um, it's almost like that's that's the first big connection, and then there are a lot of little connections all throughout, and then the final trial is is. Another like kind of almost like um, the gang's all here moment. As I was re-listening to this, uh, the, these first scenes in the monastery, I was very struck by how everyone's there. Either they get mentioned extensively, everyone important, or they're there. Um, it is interesting how well he must have thought that out. He has so many characters, and he has them all there, and he thought of a an explosive dynamic interesting, plausible way to bring them all together right at the beginning. And one of the things that I've heard from other people that have read this, uh, particularly Ellie Polhill, um, 
is is Dostoevsky is just a, a, a master at characterization that that these people seem real because they seem so infused with emotion that they they there's nothing artificial about them even if they have uh, like for example Fyodor pa- Pavlovich the father is known for acting he loves to kind of like start acting a role in the middle of a, a conversation or or a party or something like that where he like for example he likes to play the buffoon and kind of almost like be a devil's advocate in a in a fun funny way um, but in a way that desecrates whatever the person he's talking to holds dear. Yes. In a way that's it makes people hate him. <laughs> Almost want to murder him. Uh, speaking of speaking of which, I'm not seeing his name in the. I know he's here. Oh, there he is. Um, uh, Piotr Alexandrovich. Alexandrovich. Piotr Alexandrovich. Musov. 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 It's like M I U S O V. So he is the cousin to, I think he's first cousins with Dimitri's mother. Uh huh. And so he is actually who raised Dimitri from a certain point. Like, like basically his, um, like, uh, grade school, high school years. It sounded like he was oh, with Musov. Is that right? Now I'm thinking, is it actually um, Alexei and Ivan's mother he's related to? And then they went to live with him for oh, a while. Oh, maybe you're right. I No, no, I think you're right. We'll have to look back at that. Yeah, we'll look back. We'll, um, we'll clarify on the, whichever on the individual it was, episode. Musov forgot whichever ones he was supposed to be taking care of and went to France because he got so excited about the revolution that was happening in France with, like, the Paris Commune in 1848. Yeah, the 1848 And he got so excited that he just left and, like, not only, maybe it was, sorry to to throw in wrong information, but maybe it was Dimitri, but just like uh, Fyodor had forgotten he had sons both times and just, like, let Gregory raise them. Then Mius, this is so classic of Mius, he's such a complex character. He had such beautiful ideals, right? He believes in brotherhood and equality and all these beautiful things. He wants to support the revolution. He's a liberal, but he, in actual life, just forgets that he's supposed to be taking care of the, you know, these the boy and just, like, leaves, Forget he, forgets he exists. Um, in actual life, he cannot put up with someone being frustrating for, like, 30 seconds without exploding. I I like to compare him to Willie Tanner. Uh, if you don't know who that is, that's the dad on Alf. And he gets like this with Alf. He talks like this. What are you doing? Are you Alf? What did you do? It's like he's like trying with the most might anyone's ever used not to explode every second that he's around Alf. And if you've never watched Alf, go find it. It's it's a, it's just going to be a gift to you. Um, but it really is this this classic comedy team of the acting buffoon and the uptight serious like 
Stands upon his dignity. Yeah, stands upon his dignity. Character that gets rattled every time uh, by by the buffoon. Mm-hmm. And so, so that's kind of, um, I would say that's one of the first tones of the novel. And so that's that's the other thing about like answering what is this novel. It's I mean we're probably going to talk for who knows how long, but um, one of the things it is is it's a comedic novel. I mean this is a very funny novel. What it, other parts did you find funny? The the opening parts do have comedy for sure. Yeah. Um I I think I think Dimitri's funny. Yeah. Because I think he is so he's also got that like he can't he can't contain himself, but it's not the same as M- Musoff. Musoff is more like I'm about to you know, lose my temper <laughs> and Dimitri like loses his temper and then tries to go find it again. It's, it's, it's a weird, uh, uh, contrast, but it's yeah. almost like Dimitri explodes immediately and then has to kind of like, it, it's almost like the comedy with Dimitri is that he explodes immediately and then he tries to kind of come back to his senses. There's this constant thread about Dimitri being undecided or unstable and I think he says at one point, I've been unstable all my life. I hate it about myself. But even from the very beginning, I noticed the first description of Dimitri when he burst into the room and he's like, Smirdikov told me it was, this meeting was at 1 o'clock and it's, it, it was at 12 o'clock. I'm so sorry. But he burst into the room and he's described as looking resolute and undecided at the same time. Yes. It's like his eyes look undecided and like kind of, are looking all around hesitantly, but then his stride is resolute. and (laughs) That's kind of him in a nutshell. He, on the one hand, is a sensualist. He is emotional. He can't control himself. He does these awful, ignoble things. Like, he runs into his father's house and kicks him so much that he almost dies, this old man. He drags this poor guy who was just kind of like a... The whisk broom. Yeah, a lackey, like a guy doing an errand for Fyodor Pavlovich. He, like, drags him around by his beard in the streets, like, really humiliating. Like, Dimitri cannot control his anger well at all, but he also is an honorable person in other ways. Like, he's honest. He has the capacity to feel remorse. Mm -hmm. And he's on, like, a moral journey of eventually being able to accept the punishment for a crime he didn't commit because he can see, you know what, actually in my heart, I am responsible for this crime. So, like, there's a way in which I do deserve to be punished. Like, he has a deep conscience and a tendency toward honesty that I think Dostoevsky really admires. But it is, right, like you said, funny in the playing out of it sometimes because he's so, I mean, he's like going to quote poetry and then go like beat the snot out of somebody. He's so contradictory. It's ridiculous. You know, you're talking about that and it kind of makes me think about Texas forever six. (laughs) It kind of makes me think about Tim Riggins from Friday night lights and it makes me think about some other characters as well who are escaping my mind at the second, but I, I'm sure That's on the good. 
thought. On the Dimitri you. episode, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of talk more about that. Um, just the impulsive character that, that, that is, is so impulsive that, that, like you said, they're undecided. It's like they don't know their mind. They don't really know their heart. They just act on impulse all the time. And so Dimitri is one end of the pendulum. And Ivan is the, the polar extreme opposite. He is so methodical, so intellectually kind of uh, not scheming, but like he, he, has, he has considered everything a million times in his mind. And so it's almost like he is paralyzed against acting. And, and Dimitri is paralyzed, like, like uh, not paralyzed to act, but he, it's like he, he's um, almost a manic actor all the time. He's, he, he is in very, very certain terms the protagonist because he is the one that, that acts. He's not the one that's acted upon. I like that they are both undecided, but it's that, it seems to me, well, okay, one book that I read, um, I can't remember which book, but it talks about how Mitya is torn between Katerina Ivanovna, who's the Madonna, and Grushinka, who's the whore. That's a very classic formulation in literary criticism, the, the these tropes of women being the Madonna and the whore. Um it's really not that simple at all, right? Like, right. is very good at seeing the moral strengths in Grushenka, the moral weaknesses in Katerina, but that he's undecided even in that. He's like, these women represent earthiness and nobility, and he's like, which do I want? What do I want? What am I drawn to? And he has trouble deciding. Um, do I want a woman like myself? Do I woman, want a woman like my brother Ivan, who seems more calculating? But Ivan's undecided as well. I'll throw that in. That's what Father Zosima says to him. Yeah. He says, you're being torn apart by a question, which is, does God exist? Can I trust God? Is immortality real? Even if it is real, do I want it or do I think that my reason is going to almost like trump God and prove mm-hmm. that he can't be trusted because he couldn't be good? So you bring up uh, Ivan in relation to Katerina Ivanovna, which sets up yet another love triangle. So if you will, uh, just in loving memory of David Foster Wallace, a love Sarapinsky gasket. <laughs> um, Fyodor Pavlovich, the father, and Dmitri Fyodorovich, the son, both interested in Grushinka. Dmitri Fyodorovich and Ivan Fyodorovich, the brothers, both interested in Katerina Ivanovna. And of course, then there's Maud. Um, Alyosha is connected to both of those characters because the rest of his family is connected to either character. So um, we'll talk a lot about the women in their own episode. Um, 
but it it is interesting that you have a familial connection across these characters. Obviously, it's called the Brothers Karamazov, but you also have a romantic connection, um, and then then there are these other things that seem almost tangential, like um, Ilyusha. Did I say that name right? Um, the the little boy, Ilyushinka. Uh, Kol- Kolya is his Ilyusha- nickname. Ilyushinka. Oh, th- oh, sorry. Ilyushinka is the little boy who's dying. Yes. Yeah. So, so that is another world. So his dad is the whisk broom. If you have ever seen any of the portraits of Joseph Roulon by Vincent Van Gogh, I just imagine this guy uh-huh. looking exactly like that. Um, a wisp of toe is what he's called in my translation. Yeah. I'm reading the Constance Garnett. Um, but yeah, he's got a wispy beard. And then he gets, I think it's wispy partly because he gets, some of it got pulled out by Dimitri oh, yeah, when, yeah, he yeah. Him, yeah, yeah. when he pulled him through the streets by his beard, right? But I imagine it looking just like a straw, you know, yeah. um, a straw broom. And so that those portraits, particularly the light blue background ones like when you get into the one that's at the moma that that has the his beard is all curly and the background is all swirly i don't think he looks like that i think he looks more like the early uh portraits of joseph rulon but um but there's another connection that connects so many people because ultimately that the that family is in the story initially because dimitri so basically that guy was just running an errand for Fyodor Pavlovich and then Dmitri got angry with him. He was running the errand of, I think, um, basically the father was trying to get Grushinka to call in some debts on Dmitri and get him thrown into debtor's prison. So that's pretty rough, trying to get your son thrown into debtor's right. prison. Um, and somehow cat, this captain was just in the, he was a messenger or something, he was in the middle of it. And Dimitri got really angry with him and pulled him through the street by his beard, which is pretty degrading, I would say, and it's an overreaction. And then the son, little Ilyushinka, was so upset and humiliated that when he saw Alyosha later, and he was like, you're a Karamazov, he just like starts throwing rocks at him and then bites his finger really hard. And then Alyosha being Alyosha is like, let me lean into this situation instead of let me get away from this crazy child. He's like, what's going on? Why do you hate me? And then he develops this deep relationship with the whole family. And then you find right. out Katarina Ivanovna felt sorry for the family and felt responsible as Dimitri's fiance. And so she's giving them money and there's all this connection. So that, that develops a whole world yeah. uh, that, that comes, comes to life really in the last third, fourth of the, last fourth of the novel, um, and Whitney mentions Kolya, who's like the main boy of the group of boys that's mm-hmm. friends with this boy. It's so vital. I think that there's a children, a section with children, where a little boy dies, where you see children relating to each other through suffering in a way that is meaningful and joyful because it's such an important counterpoint to Ivan's abstract... I read this in the newspaper account of children's suffering, which he's using to justify not believing in God or not mm-hmm. trusting in God. It's like putting flesh on what's it really like when children suffer. And it's different from Ivan's abstract. Right. I mean, Ivan doesn't hang out with children. 
<laughs> no. Alyosha hangs out with children. Exactly. And we find out that Smerdyakov was the one that um, basically tried to corrupt Ilyushika um, by getting him to, like, put a needle in a piece of bread and get the dog to, to, to eat it. And so that we'll go over that mm-hmm. in, in a later episode. Oh, and Rakitin has been teaching Kolya all these westernizing, like, atheistic, socialistic ideas. So the more I think about it, the more I'm like, every single person in this little town is connected, which, if we want to talk about the narrator for a second, could be why he chose the narrator that he did um, as a just a person living in this small town where everyone seems to know everyone's business. Yes, and that's one of the episodes we'll do. Maybe I mentioned it, maybe I didn't. But the next episode, we're going to talk about the narrator and the tone of the novel, and there's an author's note. So actually, Dostoevsky has an introductory kind of almost like the equivalent of what would be on the back of a book. You know, it's just a two-page author's note. Um, But we'll get into that in the next episode. Um, But all that to say, the narrator is not Dostoevsky. Dostoevsky created a narrator that, like Whitney is saying, kind of works perfectly for showing the interconnectedness of all of these people and all these stories um, and, and as we'll talk about in the final episode, the Brothers Karamazov is such a profound title to the degree of, like, I almost want to do a whole episode about it like we did for Absalom Absalom, but I think we can squeeze it in with some other things. Um, but it, it really is a much more multi-layered title than... It would have seemed, especially because it seems so simple. It se- it just seems like it's so straightforward. But reading this novel, it, it, the more the deeper you get into it, the less straightforward it feels, and the more you feel like Dostoevsky is really challenging your mind to um, hold two things to be true at the same time. Uh, one of which is. Um, that people can be atheists, and one of which is that God exists, and God ultimately has has everything in his understanding such that even the suffering of children can can bear fruit in faith of the families, or, or even someone that doesn't know them like Ivan, um, that there is meaning under heaven, but when you look at things under the sun, uh, it can be very easy to lose sight of um, the eternal or spiritual meaning and things. And so that, that, that uh, challenge to think, think of things in a material way and a spiritual way is something that I think, um, I really think that Dostoevsky did that in multiple works, per- particularly Crime and Punishment, which I taught in a class called Spirits in the Material World. But... Um, but in terms of this novel, I think he's really challenging the readers um, almost, to, almost to be seduced by Ivan's way of thinking, only to uh, ultimately leave it up to the reader to choose Alyosha's way, which is faith in Christ. And, and, and I think that that's one of the beautiful things of the novel, that it doesn't it doesn't um, annihilate atheism and socialism. It, it only 
pokes the holes in them to the point where you realize it is not fruitful to put your water in that bucket because eventually it will drain you dry and, and, and make you go insane like it does for Ivan. Yeah, I really appreciate that Dostoevsky did not set up a straw man argument for atheists and then, you know, burn it down with a single match. He made the strongest, he said that the strongest case he knows of against God's goodness is suffering of children. And he said he, he gathered stories from newspaper accounts. He read like three newspapers a day, cover to cover. He gathered stories of suffering children that were all real. And he made a, the strongest case that he could think of. And then he said, you know, Father Zosima's account, which that section of the novel about Zosima is in the genre of a, a saint's life. And in fact, even the, it's, it's, it turns into a different genre, has a different narrator. Right, right. Alexi wrote that part down. And it has the tone of a saint's life, even uses a style of Russian that's different from the rest of the novel, according to the the biography I'm reading. Um, And that's one thing that happens in this novel. But I really do appreciate that Dostoevsky was almost obsessed with immortality. He thought about it and wrote about it a lot. Um, The necessity of man living forever. And Part of the reason why is that on earth, suffering cannot be overcome. Jesus even said that. Like, if you carefully read what Jesus said and what the New Testament letters say, there's just an assumption that suffering will continue, right? <coughs> Poverty, and, and, yeah, war. Yeah, and, and inequality. Right. <clears throat> that you will not have paradise on earth. That's what eternity is for. That's what the millennial reign of Christ is for. That, you know, it's not going to be resolved on earth. And so when Dostoevsky was a young man, he was a Christian socialist, essentially. That was what he got sent off, famously got sent off to Siberia to a prison camp for, was associating with and, you know, helping spread the ideas of Christian socialists. He realized over time that, socialism is trying to set up a utopia on earth and that that's impossible. And part of the reason why is that eternity is when suffering is made right. Um, when justice is brought, when we start to see purpose in all things, but also another reason is what he called the law of, um, personality. He said that he realized in the prison camp that the ego of a human being wants to assert itself so badly. And he said, in fact, I'm going to read just a little bit, if you don't mind, um, from this wonderful Joseph Frank biography that I'm reading. Um, Okay, so this is Dostoevsky writing about free will and the ego and what he calls the law of personality. Um, He says, Christ alone could love man as himself. What he means by that is only Christ could love human beings in all of their flaws and brokenness and messed up, you know, sin. Human beings just aren't loving enough to consistently love each other. Only Christ can, like, truly um, 
love fully in the state that we're in. Um, but Christ was a perpetual, eternal ideal to which man strives. Meanwhile, since the appearance of Christ is the ideal of man in the flesh, it has become clear as day that the highest use a man can make of his personality and of the full development of his ego is to annihilate that ego, to give it totally and to everyone, undividedly and unselfishly. He says basically that God gives us free will. Ego and free will are kind of interchangeable for him, I think. God gives us free will so that we can make the highest use of our free will, which is to submit our will to our creator and to unselfishly submit to other people and their needs. Um, But he also recognizes that it's only in eternity we're fully going to be able to do this. And he uses the example of how on earth we get married and form our own families. And so we selfishly focus in on our own families. We have to take care of each other. We spend more time and energy on each other. In heaven, there will be no more marriage. People will be like the angels, not getting married. We won't focus our energies in selfishly. We'll be able to love the way Christ loves, where you can have the, the mental energy and the ability to overcome your ego, where you can love everyone unselfishly and not have to hone in selfishly. But all this to say, this novel is an exploration partly of free will and the ego. But because Dostoevsky wrote realistic novels, I mean, he was ground, tethered to the real world. He wasn't writing fantasy utopias or something. He knew that on earth, under the sun, like you said, people cannot overcome the law of personality, their ego. They're not going to fully be able. So you have characters. I mean, Alyosha is the closest to an ideal and and Zosima. Um, Even they have their struggles, their low points, their doubts. Right. But the other characters are struggling even more. Like you see Dimitri he wants to give himself over to moving to Siberia and minister. He has a, a hymn. He calls it a hymn in my translation. Um, like a hymn he's writing that basically is this beautiful idea of going to Siberia and ministering to the prisoners there unselfishly and saying, you know what? I didn't commit this crime, but I'm going to embrace this opportunity because those prisoners might need someone to just love them and minister to them. I'm going to mm. go. I mean, that's so beautiful, yeah. that concept. That reminds me of what, like, Corey Ten Boom and her sister did in the hiding place in the, in the Nazi concentration camps. Like, how can we minister here? We're put here for a purpose by God. Our suffering has meaning. Um, but even Dimitri, waver, he wavers in that, right? He's like, should I do that or should I escape? you know, try to escape and not go since I'm I'm not guilty. Right. What should I do? That beautiful dream, you can't fully achieve it on earth. So Joshua doesn't try to show people being perfect on earth. That's not the way his novel of ideas work. It doesn't work by showing utopia or showing a perfect person. It works by showing the potential of real people to get closer to what Christ was like. Yeah. So, um, We've hit a lot of the novel of ideas. Um, <laughs> I'm going to attempt to make a quick um, stop at the water closet while Whitney talks to us about 
the idea of this being a contemporary novel. So, so take as long as you want. I will hustle. Uh, but tell us about how this is a novel. Is written. It's it's written um, in the eighteen seventies, and it's published finally in eighteen seventy eight, I believe. And so, talk to us about how this is a novel about the contemporary world and why Dostoevsky wanted to write about his own time so much. Okay, that was so delicately put. It's a visit to the water closet. <laughs> the WC. Um, as I said, I'm terrible with dates. Um, I can never remember numbers as well as I can remember words. Um, but this, this novel was published serially. So during the last few years of his life in like the 18, kind of early 1880s, Dostoevsky was publishing it, um, serially. So he would be writing it as it was being published and sending it off, um, to the publication. Um, but Dostoevsky was fascinated by current court cases by the new ideas that were taking over in the minds of young people. He really saw himself as a kind of a, almost an appointed prophet. That sounds arrogant, but almost an appointed prophet to the younger generation in Russia at that time, who he, he knew that when he was a young man, he was easily carried away into some um, things that he later realized were destructive or just errors. Um, he went to prison for, um, I think, four years as a result of his alliance with socialism um, and just the repressive measures that the Russian government took at that time um, against ideas like socialism that could potentially undermine the autocracy of Russia. Um, but all this to say, he paid very close attention to the um, the ideas that were driving the students at that time. Um, he was an interesting, unique figure in Russia at that time because he was considered fairly conservative. Um, he supported the czar, for example. He, most... Um, People kind of in his position, like the intelligentsia, people who published um, in the literary journals were liberals who wanted a constitution limiting the powers of the czar, um, who wanted to become oftentimes more Western, um, more like Western Europe. Um, he was like that as a young man, too, um, followed those ideas and fought for them. But as he grew older and had some life experiences, he grew more and more convicted that Russia had a special role to play in the world and that the Russian czar is the father of the people and that his role should be preserved as a protector and like a, that special relationship should be preserved and that Russia was unique and shouldn't try to be France, shouldn't try to be England. Um, and he, he really saw himself as promoting that idea and promoting the just the I would say the idea that um the orthodox faith specifically has a almost like messianic role to play in the world and that God was going to use the orthodox faith to bring about kind of a revival in the whole world but that 
the intelligentsia, the kind of influential younger generation of Russia needed to come back to the faith um, and fight for it instead of trying to thwart it because um, atheism was, you know, taking hold among the, like, kind of young educated classes in Russia. And I would say Dostoevsky just really felt that the, the peasants, the serfs, like just the average Russian person still, despite their, their sinful tendencies and their ignorance, um, they just had an instinctive faith in God, um, whereas the educated classes were moving away from that and thinking they were becoming more sophisticated by doing so, like Ivan. Um, he looked at the world around him, and he wrote this novel to address the tendencies he saw in the world around him and give a vision for what he thought was the solution, what was what was needed in order to revitalize Russia. There was so much anarchism um, that was that we see ended up anarchism and socialism ended up taking over Russia. Like, but there were anarchists who were incredibly influential um, who were advocating destroying everything. I mean, when I say destroying everything, killing all the political leaders, destroying every civil institution, like maybe burning down a whole city and saying, well, we'll just rebuild something better out of the ashes. It'll be great. And Dostoevsky just increasingly felt so dismayed about this impulse to destroy um, in this thought process that says, we don't even really know what we want to build. We just want to destroy. Um, just how ugly that is. And, and that was what the contemporary educated world in Russia was headed toward. So <clears throat> you bring up the idea of like the contemporary novel is talking about the world as it is um, rather than the world as it was and is not anymore. And it's certainly not like what should the world be in a, in a like uh, utopian or dystopian um, vision, right? Um, and yet the question of like what is to be done I think that's a, a question that can really best be answered by the contemporary novel because instead of saying, well, let's look to the past to see what should be done, you really can't completely recreate the past perfectly. Um, I think that that's one of the like fundamental flaws in conservatism is this imaginary um, ideal you know, um, like, for example, even in the phrase, make America great again, it, it couldn't be great in the same way that it was. It's just not the same country, and it's not the same world. It's not the same time, technology, mm -hmm. et cetera. And so... Um, and you don't want to go to the extreme of... Oh, I'm sorry. You go that, ahead. I'm yeah. <laughs> and so, so what that phrase is saying in my, in my reading of it is make America a great nation again, but not go backward to being the America of the 80s or the 50s or the 1920s or what, whatever era America was great in relation to the world. Because I think that, that you know, some people would read that phrase and think, oh, that's just saying, like, America was better when, like, people of color had fewer rights. And I, I just don't believe the average person that supports that vision 
is thinking in those terms. They're thinking in terms of my labor skill set would allow my family, which is going to what Whitney was saying, to be able to live higher on the hog, to be able to live with more security, to be able to be freer and be able to, say, worship more freely or um, move more readily or, or whatever it is. Um, and, and just that if you get stuck too long in a class system, eventually what happens is what happened in, in France, which is total overthrow of the system. And um, it, it's very rare for the elderly or the middle-aged to want to totally overthrow the system because they, their position would necessarily change significantly in a way that they couldn't um, build it back up. And so there, I see the vision of wanting to look to the past to say, here's how the future should be. I understand that. I love that. That's a great idea. However, it cannot be the be-all, end-all. It has to marry the present. And so liberalism says the world should be better than it is. Let's make it better. But it's so impersonal. It's not about making your family better. It's about the state, the government, the institutions somehow forcing individuals to change. You know, a corporation putting up, say, um, a political um, you know, advertisement as part of their branding, you know, for whatever that be, whatever that be, whether it's something with individual rights or whether it's something with, um, say, class rights or national rights, like, like for example, Ukraine. Um, that is something where I think it's a liberal mindset that says, um, you know, Starbucks can make me a different person. You know, I, if you're being made into a different person because the brand you like wants you to be, then I would say that is your God or whoever is determining what that, that brand is puts forth, that person is really who's controlling you. And so, you know, I, I think that people are submissive to something regardless uh, of whether it's God or not, but I think sometimes it can be much more ephemeral, like how to, how to put your finger on what that person submits to because they think they're not being submissive to anything. They think they're being autonomous. And uh, I, you know, I borrow from Bob Dylan, got to serve somebody. And so um, the, the, um, I think part of the, the contemporary novel that, that Dostoevsky is doing is showing that the liberal-minded people in the novel are saying we have to serve the future by changing the present. And uh, there, there is some wisdom to that and 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 I that's why I think it's just it's it's essential to not be so enslaved to a political vision but to be a willing servant of the living God because God is neither conservative nor liberal he is ages upon ages outside of time he is eternally new 
He is constantly making things new through Christ. And so he's equally creative and restorative, or, or, or maybe restorative is not the right word, but, but like holding fast to the, 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 the past in, 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 this, in the sense of like he is not going to let go of the past for the sake of the present. Um, he, the promise he made to Abraham in Genesis is still being followed through now. So, so um, you know, that, that mindset of, like, where, where does Christianity fit in this political spectrum? I think Dostoevsky's doing a great job of saying, here's what Christianity has to say about 19th century Russia. And he's really, even though he's, he's alluding to uh, Europe, he's really keeping it contained to what he knows, which I think is really powerful. Um, and so, it, even though it's a novel of ideas, it's a novel of ideas for a specific time and place and people that he knew incredibly well and spent basically his whole life writing about Russians. So, um, so that's kind of, it's almost like I'm seeing it in, in terms of he wrote the perfect um, time period to evaluate Christianity for the sake of the future, which he, he saw what is to be done. If Russia chooses um, liberal atheism, socialism over Orthodox Christianity, here's what will eventually happen. And sadly, he was 100% right. He, he saw the Russian Revolution coming from about two generations away. And so... Uh, he dies, you know, in 1881, about 40, well, 35 years before the Rus- Russian Revolution. But, but he sees in characters like Ivan and Smerdyakov and uh, Rakitin and several others where that impulse to say everything is permitted would end up killing the entire Tsar family and, and violently overthrowing the government. Um, and then, of course, the Soviet Union lasted about 70 years, but it was just a, almost a comedy of errors the whole time because it, it was just, you can't sustain life without faith in God. And really the things that Dostoevsky was prophesying that human beings require free will and freedom of conscience, um, and that if you focus on just their material needs and meeting their material needs and creating justice for their material needs. Um, that's just not enough for the human spirit. Um, that, okay, I've got a full belly. I've got a steady job. I've got like a nice, you know, comfortable roof over my head. Okay. What do I need now? I need more. That's the human humans need more than bread alone. That's why in the grand inquisitor section, he uses the temptations of Christ um, I'm going to actually read a section of a book. I got I got excited and interrupted because I was something you said was making me think about the fact that conservatives and liberals create utopias or like want to create utopias. It's just that conservatives look backward often and say like it was better then and we should try to strive toward that and they glamorize the past and liberals have this idea that change will be good change. It will be progress and that we can create a utopia in the future. Um, I just want to quickly summarize and say Dostoevsky in that 
Grand Inquisitor legend, um, he was very prejudiced against Catholicism. Like he was a he was an Orthodox Christian, but he had a lot of prejudices against Catholicism, and I think to an unfair degree. But it's because he was looking around. He he went and lived for a time in, um, you know, Italy, and he lived in Switzerland. He lived in I want to say France. He lived in Germany for sure. He saw the Catholic Church and the Lutheran churches at work, and he said, basically, none of these are faithful anymore. And these societies are just secular, atheistic societies, more and more and more. And he specifically felt that the Catholic Church had focused on earthly power instead of on spiritual matters. And he felt that the Lutheran Church had focused too much on reason and glorified reason, which just ended up leading to Ivan's style, like, trust in your own self instead of God and atheism. But I'm going to read just the short section um, from the biography. It says, the legend, um, this is a quote from Dostoevsky, the legend was directed against Catholicism and the papacy, and particularly the period of the Inquisition, which had such awful effects on Christianity and on all of humanity. And then this is the writer, Franks. Even though Dostoevsky said nothing about socialism in these remarks, both socialism and Catholicism had become identical for him as embodiments of the first and third temptations of Christ, the betrayal of Christ's message of spiritual freedom in exchange for bread, and the aspiration toward earthly power. So that related to, to me to what, what you were saying about political aims. I, I really think that political aims are aiming at earthly power and material goods, you know, um, whether it be making sure everyone has bread, making sure everyone has shelter, make, you know, those are good things. Like the, bread is not bad. Man cannot live on bread alone. And the temptation is, that Dostoevsky saw all around him is to treat earthly power and material goods as all that mattered. And if you had those things, you would have everything you needed in life. If the power were more equitably distributed and the goods were more equitably distributed. And he just looked at that and said, you don't understand what it is to be human. It's not to have a full belly and to have like a modicum of power. It's so much more than that. Yeah. You know, just, there's so much, I mean, th that's why we're talking about this novel. <laughs> it's like, it, it, it contains so much to discuss, to interpret, to imagine, to fathom. And, and I think that just, that concept of both conservatism and liberalism want to create a utopia and, and maybe conservatism is just trying to recreate a utopia. You know, when I think about like, there's a part of me that's like, oh, well, life was better when, and you know, you fill it in the blanks. Um, but I think, you know, especially in America, and of course, you know, we haven't lived anywhere else besides America, but the idea that, oh, let's, let's make America more culturally Christian again. Well, we've been in a church 
that had a lot of cultural Christianity and had a lot of people that were not Christians that were, you know, faithful attenders and, and, and wanted to do exactly what Whitney said, which is have the power within that church. And it was a very uh, intimate, familial, like, well, that's my mommy's or daddy's or grandpappy's, whatever, um, legacy. And, and we can't use the money for that. We should, you know, we should be, uh, my family should determine whether or not the church does this. And I think that that's a temptation in any avenue of life, whether it's your summer swim club or whether it's the government or anything in between. Um, there's just, there's always going to be some element of, of personal to it. And, and, um, you know, what, what Whitney was mentioning about the, the, um, the Russian youth when, when they were developing the, the atheistic socialism that, that ultimately kind of uh, crystallized in the communism of Karl Marx and, and, and the Russian Revolution. That generation of, of people was very broken and, and wounded. And, and, and the novel talks to this. It talks about what really what fathers should do. And um, we'll talk about that at, at length in, in future episodes, but I think that that's one of the things, um, if there is functionality and, and order in a family and in the community and in the society, there will be flourishing. There will be growth. There will be um, aspiration. But if there's brokenness and woundedness and, and dysfunction, and, you know, we, you know, <laughs> all happy families are alike. Um, you know, thank goodness we're not doing Anna Karenina. You should hear how much Dostoevsky hated Anna Karenina. He had so many bad things to say about it. You, you would love it. <laughs> I read Anna Karenina in 2020, and it just about killed me. Um, you know, I understand... The, the 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 strengths of it, I guess, if you want to call it that. I like I, I can see why people think of it highly. I do not think of it that highly. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. But um, it's interesting that really Dostoevsky writes Brothers Karamazov as a family story the same way that Anna Karenina is a family story, and yet I think Brothers Karamazov has so much more to say about the basically the domino effect of dysfunction in family and what it will do to society and you know just within the uh, the the the, the uh, confines of this book is par- parasite you know the the, the 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 children will kill the parents yeah sigmund freud um this was the main book that inspired his Oedipal theory. <laughs> and I think he took it off in a really weird direction based on what the book's ideas and propositions are. But the, it's the iconic book about killing your father because you feel rivalry with your father over a woman. I mean. That's true. <laughs> right. But, yeah, I think that um, what you're saying is a good point that, so Dostoevsky 
use the phrase accidental families for families like this. Just We would call them dysfunctional families, families where it was like no one was being intentional and it was just kind of randomly thrown together. Um, he was really interested in that concept. So it's insightful that you're noting that, that an accidental family where no one's being intentional, the parents aren't being intentional, um, has ripple effects throughout a whole society. And he really saw himself as a father figure for the young people in Russia. He really saw himself as taking on the mantle of like guy, you know, giving guidance to the young people. And it was interesting because he's conservative and almost none of the young people were conservative, but they still liked him. Um, like there were, there were a few times where he gave public readings from brothers K. He read the part, he read the great inquisitor in public by itself for sure. He read the part where, um, Dimitri gets uh, Katya to come to his rooms to ask for the money, and he's, like, planning on humbling her pride and, like, taking advantage of her, but then he can't do it in the moment. He read that part. Um, and the descriptions of how these young people in Russia would react, I got teary-eyed reading it because... They would res- like there were people in the audience who had tears streaming down their faces, who were just like trembling, who were like rocking back and forth, just like in excitement, like they couldn't contain themselves at the idea of like man's spiritual freedom and about how you don't have to give in to your basis impulses and you have freedom of your moral will. Um, in the moment when he was writing, young people in Russia were starting to move toward more idealism and less of this like kind of utilitarian cold egocentric thing um that you see kind of through Ivan and they were inspired by him and it's, it would say they had a, all these quotations in the biography from young people who were like radical young people but they would say well you know Dostoevsky we could tell he was being sincere and it, you know you, <laughs> you talking about that makes me think of Fetchikovich the defense attorney and and when he finishes his defense of Mitya everyone is just yes like exploding Ecstatic. It, with with just you are exactly right and that is and and you know that's that's was another amazing thing about this novel is that Dostoevsky writes the the prosecuting attorney's speech and the defense attorney's speech and they are both so convincing Mm -hmm. it's so much better than watching like you know a a law tv show Mm -hmm. or a movie that's about like um something like philadelphia or something like that where it's like you're clearly gonna side with denzel watch i mean yeah (laughs) how how do you not get one over by by Denzel. It's it's like it's as if both characters are played by Denzel at different ages. Like Denzel in Training Day is um is um Fetchikovich and or, or Denzel in in Philadelphia or something like that versus like um Ippolit Ippol- uh shoot, I lost his name. Um Let's call him Ippolit. Ippolit Kirillovich. Uh, the uh, the prosecutor, he is, like, at the end of his career. So it'd be like Denzel and, like, Macbeth or Fences or something that, where he's done something recently. Not that Denzel's that old, but, you know, it's like the idea of the difference between someone 
that seems to be in his prime versus someone who's like, this is his last breath. I'm going to do this. And, and it's, it's, it's compelling. I mean, it's, it's compelling, but it's also like, oh, my gosh, this goes on forever. And there are no paragraphs. It's just all one long paragraph. But, and people uh, would sit in the courtroom and listen to that in person in rapt attention. Yes. Which yes. just, like, goes to show that we as a culture are not good at listening and paying attention to long things. Like, people in the past were better at it. Except podcasts. Hey! Um, but... I think that that's, that's part of why I think podcasts have gotten, I mean, I'm going way off script now. I think that's why they've gotten popular is we have a desperate need to be able to listen. And so being able to listen through uh, podcasts is actually helping us be better listeners in person. Mm. I think it improves our listening to other, you know, Mm -hmm. um, like listening to someone read aloud. Or Follow certainly, a train of thought. Yeah, mm-hmm. Certainly to listen to a sermon. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for those of you that are listening, we really appreciate it. And we know we're going long, but we're just so excited about the Brothers Karamazov. But, but yeah, go ahead. Well, just you were saying um, how compelling the speeches are, the courtroom speeches. I agree. They're convincing. Both are convincing. And this book that I read, I think, Adam, did you read this book too? Yes. A little book by Arthur Trace about this book. It's a great little book. Um, but what's, one, it, what's it called? Dostoevsky and the Brothers Karamazov. Pretty straightforward title. And Arthur spelled with an E instead of a U. Yeah, unusual. Arthur Trace. Um, but anyway, I like this book, and it made the point that the – fact that there's so much compelling circumstantial evidence against Dimitri, yet he's not guilty, goes to show the limits of human reason. It expresses one of the key ideas of the book. And he says that um, this book is partly a litmus test for the reader, how you respond. um, Like, this must be true. He must be. It has to be this way. Um, can help reveal your so the extent to which you're trusting in reason and thinking a person can just figure everything out. Um, to what extent are you convinced by the idea that Dimitri can't really be held responsible for his his crime because he's had a bad upbringing and he's a victim? Um, like, do you believe that sin exists? Like, it's an litmus test for that. Like that the novel is testing us by just presenting a lot of points of view and letting us react and it's kind of exposing us to ourselves by how we react I think that's a, a great idea and I love that this novel this sounds weird I said the same thing on the Flannery O'Connor podcast last season but it kind of um, lifts up the necessity of sin in the sense that if you can't see yourself as a sinner if you only see yourself as a victim of your circumstances and your heredity, you're you're not seeing yourself as having the full dignity of a human being that God has given to you. Being a sinner who needs to repent means you have responsibility. You have moral weight. You have dignity. There are expectations on you. Think about that. If you're an adult human being and there are no expectations placed on you, it means no one respects you at all. No one thinks you have any dignity as a full adult. 
Dostoevsky firmly believes that Mitya and every other person are responsible for their sins as sins. And they can't be explained away by the, the Bernards, um, <laughs> as Mitya keeps calling them. The Bernards, who Bernard was this um, sociologist who basically taught that no one is responsible for their decisions. He, he taught determinism, which means that your hereditary um, tendencies and the environment you're raised in just determine what you do, and you're not responsible morally. And Mitya just really ridicules that concept um, and says, basically sees how, how demeaning and demoralizing that is. You know, you mentioned this idea of, like, seeing your sin as, as such, and I think that that's one of the things that both both the prosecutor and the defense attorney, attorney, attorney say is that parasite is wrong, that it's wrong to kill your father. And yet, if there is no God... How do you know it's wrong? And not only is it wrong, they both agree that it's it's almost like this is a chief sin. This is this is a chief evil that you would kill the kill the person who who bore you and raised you and provided for you is is the and of course that you know we we are thinking of it much differently since we have Josephine. I think if you don't have children, it's different to think about because you only have the relation of you being a child to your parents versus thinking of it on either side. And, and to those that don't have kids, I'm not saying like you're less because you mm-hmm. don't have kids. I'm just saying like my perspective of this book is, is, is a different one than I would have had before we had Josephine. And it, and it's that like, I, I show love to Josephine every day. Whitney shows love to Josephine every day. And so to think that she would get to the point where she literally kills one of us yeah. would be a, a, a travesty. She wouldn't remember all the dirty diapers we changed. And, and, and all the times that we took her outside when it was over 100 degrees because she wanted to go outside because it's Georgia in the summer. And, and, and I totally understand that. It's like I, I see what Dostoevsky's getting to about why this is such a chief evil and yet, it's just a sin. It's not a worse sin than lying, for example. And, you know, like in the trial, the defense attorney refu- basically refuses to um, plead innocent. Like, Mitt is like, I did not do this. And he's like, yeah, we're not going that direction because <laughs> all the evidence seems like it's against you. So, he, the annoyingly, the defense attorney is proceeding on an untruth like he's proceeding in his argument on the basis of an untruth and then he has to say basically he has to acknowledge that parasite's really bad but then say but you know is it because this was not really a father yeah he's saying is this a a parasite like is is this a murder of a parent or not because he wasn't a parent to these boys he abandoned these boys like is it really even so bad? Isn't it understandable that you'd want to kill your father when he behaved this way? Like, there is no sin. 
that right. that's what that like everything is permissible. Like it's a like I would call it like a, a liberal minded, like soft, gentle version of everything is permissible to yeah. say, Hey, isn't he a victim of his circumstances and his like poor upbringing and no one gave him any guidance. So like, he can't help it that he killed his father. That's just, you know, the natural consequence. And then of course, even though it doesn't ever work out this way in the immediate, uh, you know, aftermath, if it's okay to kill your parents, then more people will kill their parents. And eventually, every parent will get murdered. Like, the, the philosophy is, if you were to have no checks and balances on murder, that everyone would be violent all the time, which is exactly what happened before Noah's flood, is that the world was violent all the time. And that's, that's how the world was in the 1910s. There's a mm. world war there's a, you know, the Russian Revolution, which is, is, you know, tremendous bloodshed. And all in the name of, we should be allowed to do this. And that's a great point, because I think that connects back to the prosecutor's speech, which is basically divided. I think probably the, the weakness of the prosecutor's speech is that it's divided into... The, the speaker seems not to actually believe in kind of like a grounded Christian morality based on absolutes. However, he knows that this is a strong argument, so he makes it, which is this is a slippery slope. If we don't convict this young, if we have sympathy on this young man because we can see why he'd want to kill his father and we don't convict him, bring the hammer down on him, like you just said, it's a slippery slope. People will think it's okay to kill their fathers. People will think it's okay to kill anyone who, like, bothers them or is bad. That's a slippery slope we don't want to go down. He calls Russia a runaway troika, like a mm -hmm. runaway carriage. Um, and he's like, you know, we got to put the brakes on this runaway carriage. And convicting Mitya is, like, a way of doing that. Yeah. Um, and I think that we've actually seen that mindset play out in the post-war years. So we have communist barbarities. We have the barbarities of the world wars. And then you see modern, secular, atheistic societies saying, we got to put the brakes on this runaway troika somehow. <laughs> we got to just decide among ourselves that there are community norms and human rights and that we know that there's no actual like basis for saying that everyone has rights. This is arbitrary, but we're all going to decide it and enforce it because otherwise it's going to be terrible. And, and the, the challenge of that is what happens when people deviate from that? What happens when people disagree with that? Well, eventually enough people disagree and you get the Russian Revolution. And the problem is if you don't put your basis of morality in the morality that God has given man, which is at the very least the Ten Commandments, which ultimately the Ten Commandments covers a multi... I mean, it, 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 it speaks to so many different sins, uh, particularly murdering your father. Uh, honor, your, honor your father and mother is a commandment. So is thou shalt not murder. And so just, just between those two things, you know, not to mention the other eight commandments, which, you know, I think all those 
<laughs> probably covered in the like the relationship between Dimitri and Theodore. Um, but just the fact that you have that happening in this book and and uh, um, Dostoevsky has, has illustrated everything is permissible in this particular sin rather than any other, I think is indicative of what he sees will be the ultimate uh, playing out. And, and ultimately, who does kill his father? Smerdyakov. So it, mm-hmm. it is a parasite. It's even though Dmitri's not the, the son killing his father, it still is, and mm-hmm. and and an um, even greater victim. I mean, yeah. Smirnikov yeah. is even less. He's an illegitimate son. He's even less privileged in receiving any kind of love and support from his father or his family. Yeah. He has nothing. He's the ultimate societal victim who people could theoretically justify yeah. in doing what he does, and it's still not justified in the novel. And Smirnikov comes across as odious, not as, like, poor Smirnikov. Yeah, he's not an anti-hero. Yeah. He's, he's just a, a villain and, and almost, like, not worthy of being the, the main villain, supervillain. It's really Ivan that ultimately sees himself as the villain. And, and I, amazingly, Dimitri sees his villainy even through his innocence. He protests that he didn't kill his father, but he does not protest against being a sinner. He says, I wanted to in my heart. Mm-hmm. So, like, he's taking on what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount about hating yeah. in your heart and taking it seriously. And, like saying, okay, send me to prison in Siberia yeah. for it. It's kind of it's kind of re- really remarkable. Well, I'm going to add one more thing. I know we're going kind of long, but speaking of Russia, <laughs> um, to me it seems right now um, that the situation with Ukraine is kind of a, a playing out of what do we do when people don't follow the social norms that we've decided about human rights and territorial sanctity and things like that. Like the things that were hashed out in the post-World War II era yes. as like the norms of kind of Western society or polite society or whatever. Um, there are several places in the world that I would just call like hot spots where like modern Western people feel like there's injustice happening like i'm going to name three russia ukraine situation saudi arabia where there's like a lot of um you know there are a lot of limitations on women and other things like that and then um china where of course obvious limitations on people's freedoms and i think that the west is looking at those places right now and saying you know, I know that we came up with this wonderful list of human rights and, and norms that we were going to follow and fight for, but we actually need oil from Saudi Arabia. We need them to buy our weapons, and we actually need China, like, because our economy is intertwined with the Chinese economy. And Russia, we don't want to go to war with Russia. What a mess. We don't want to go to war. So we're not going to do anything. We're going to do slaps on the wrist and, like, mild sanctions and, like, Oh, Visa said you, Russian people can use their Visa cards inside Russia, but if you leave Russia, you can't use your Visa card anymore. Like, 
these like yeah. mild things that are being done, which I would just say is exemplifying is the fact that Western people understood as a lesson from the 20th century, we need to have limits, even if we don't believe in God. We just need to decide that we have limits and values because we can't live without them. It's horrible. However, how far are we willing to go to actually like fight for those limits or enforce those limits? Is it going to cause us material suffering? Is it going to cause us self-sacrifice? I don't know that we want those things. Yeah, it's interesting that you bring that up. There's a huge difference between virtue signaling and sacrificing. And, um, you know, now we're in the weeds, but whatever, it's the first episode. Um, I think that people who want to support Ukraine have a sincere uh, desire to say, I want there to be peace on earth. Hold on just a second. I did not come to bring peace, but division. Jesus did not intend for the world to be peaceful. They see um, China and they see, um, you know, economic disparity and, and, and uh, governmental control. And Jesus says, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's, render unto God what is God's. And he says, the poor will always be with us. So poverty is not going away. And the government is going to have some power over us. And um, and in terms of Saudi Arabia, you know, it's like Jesus has so many different things to say about uh, women and uh, oppression and like like wealth disparity and things like that. Um, and 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 I can't think of anything off the top of my head to to like illustrate this, but I do think that. God allows the world to not be heaven so that we will long for heaven. And that's a key idea in this novel, I think. So that actually kind of brings us full circle yeah. beautifully. And, and I think that it's hard for us to understand why doesn't God let the world be heaven? And it's because he's not here. I mean, he, he's here in the, in the presence of the Holy Spirit. He came here in the presence of the body of Jesus, although Jesus is eternal, so he was already in heaven. But God is in heaven. That is where we should want to belong. And belonging on earth is counterproductive to belonging in heaven. And, of course, Jesus has the kingdom of heaven has now come to earth because Christ came to earth in, you know, 1 AD and so or 1 B 1 CE which stands for non-Christians as common era but for Christians you can just call it the Christ era um, so BCE and CE still still points to the fact that Christ is the measure of time uh, and will be for the rest of time but but that concept of Christ came so that we could see a taste of the kingdom of heaven and not have to live in a world that's just violent all the time. So when we want peace uh, between nations, that's a good impulse, but it is not the be-all, end-all. 
when we want um, fairness from government or, or economic parity, that is a great impulse. And, and within the church, we can desire and seek that. And I think that the healthiest churches, in, in, you know, in any place in the world are, are to some degree ex- ex- exhibiting that. And obviously, we want women to be treated with equal dignity, you know, as, as men. And so a place like Saudi Arabia that just w- will not enforce that is, is a vision of, like, we shouldn't see Islam and say, yep, that's the right way to do it. But what is dignity? And I think that that's, it's like when the West applies its like secular liberalism uh or or if you want to call it like wokeism like i just i understand it now as like wokeism is a is a religion and it's like that lens to see another culture or religion is just going to naturally create dichotomies and things where you just can't you can't reconcile and and i think that that's that's the challenge is like in Christianity, we say not all will be reconciled in my lifetime, and I will not get to see the justice of God on earth for every situation. Maybe not even for my own situations, and that's that's a bitter pill. I mean, I you know I've had to swallow that pill in several situations, and and it took a long time for the medicine to kick in, but now I have a peace beyond understanding that allows me to not get angry when I see someone who has done something unjust to me. And I am in the process of forgiving them. And may, maybe I won't forgive them perfectly, but you know, I think about the, the Lord's Prayer saying, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And I, I pray as often as I can that I will be as forgiving of others as God has been of me. And, and I think that, you know, when I look at this novel, the, the main reason to read this novel is, is to see Alyosha in action. Because um, I was listening to a sermon about um, Isaiah um, on, on the way back from Myrtle Beach. And um, Tim Keller was, was preaching about this idea of the banality of evil. And how every movie and TV show and whatever wants to make the villain out to be so interesting. And oh my gosh, being, being good is so boring. Being faithful is so boring. And yet in reality, all of the evil things kind of run together. And, and, and it's like this is a sad thing to say. You don't really feel a lot different about one school shooting versus another, especially if it's like two different school shootings at elementary schools. You're just like, well, they're both bad, but it's like, what is there to learn from them? They're mm-hmm. they're just, it's 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 evil being enacted. And destruction is so easy. Yes, compared to creation. Yes, like I could burn down a house, I could not build a house. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I could kill someone in a second. It took me nine months of hard labor (laughs) and then some real hard labor at the end to get Josephine into this world. Like, that is part of why it's banal. That's that's Hannah Arendt. That's where that's coming from. She went to the Nazi 
trials and reported on them and wrote a book. And she said, wow, these are just little men. Like, these are just normal, kind of boring-looking, bureaucratic men. And they did these enormous... I mean, the Nazi regime is known as the most evil thing ever to exist, and it was a bureaucratic machine for killing. Right. Like, that... Basically, I think a takeaway there for Christians is, like, A, evil is not glamorous, and goodness is rich and interesting. And some writers are so good at depicting goodness in a way that's, like, winning and beautiful. And Dostoevsky yeah. is one of them. I think C.S. Lewis is yeah. one of them. Um, but then the flip side of that is anyone can be evil. Yeah. Everyone is evil. Yeah. Fewer people exhibit a lot of goodness. Yeah. And the goodness that they exhibit, whether they're intentionally doing it or not, is coming from the grace of Christ. And Alyosha and Zosima too are really, they are just vehicles for God's grace and God's mercy rather than God's judgment. And I think that that's, that's a hard thing to do, and obviously we're going to talk about it extensively with this season. But this idea of what is the role of the Christian, and I think that part of Christianity is is stating that God will judge and God has the right to judge. But to be judgmental on behalf of God, I think, is very damaging to people because it makes them think that we think of ourselves as God. And it's like, I'm never going to be God. I do have Christ's spirit within me. So I do have a divinity to me that is Christ. But I share that with the body of believers. Like, I share that with every other Christian, past, present, and future. And so that, I think, is is really coming to life in this novel where Alyosha really doesn't make anybody be good. He doesn't force anyone to be faithful. I think he does what is, you know, the, they call it, uh, Francis Schaeffer called it the ultimate, um, the ultimate defense of Christianity. The ultimate apologetic is how Christians love one another. And, um, and that if non-Christians see that love played out in forgiveness and grace and, and just uh, overwhelming generosity and, and all these different things, mm-hmm. then they will say, I'm, I will be better off inside of that than outside of it. Yeah, Elisha, like he can hang around his father's house when his father is so debauched and his father doesn't feel judged by him. His father feels loved by him, but he still turns away in sadness from the sin. Like he strikes this beautiful balance. Like I was looking at First um, Corinthians 13, the love passage, but I do think you could fill in Alyosha's name there pretty well. Like Alyosha does not insist on his own way. He's not irritable or resentful. He does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Alyosha bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Like, he is very hopeful. Like, when he meets Grushenka, she's being pretty obnoxious. Like, she sits on his lap to try to embarrass him, stuff like yeah. that. And he still is like, you know what? I see, like, you took pity on me. You've got some kindness in you. Like, he just is hopeful that there's something more to people 
than they're showing, but he also is not a fool. Like, right. he doesn't look at people and say, oh, you must just be a sweet person. Like, he sees their sin and, like, sorrows over it. Yeah. He's a very interesting character. And we've talked about this just in the terms of our own relationship and marriage, uh, idealism versus optimism. He's an optimist on earth. His idealism is is an eternal idealism that that I think is wise to not conflate with idealizing your marriage, your parenting, your work, you know, your place that you live, et cetera, uh, your friendships. And so... He, he is always optimistic. He always has hope. But like Whitney is saying, he doesn't discount the brokenness of the world. And, um, you know, Whitney making that point about like fill in the blank with Alyosha. I mean, that's I think that's certainly my goal and Whitney's goal. I think it, it should be the goal of all Christians to say, because of Christ, I can be patient and kind, long suffering not rejoicing in what is evil, but rejoicing in what is good. You know, I can do those things through Christ, but I am not a perfect example mm-hmm. of that, nor, nor is Aloysia. But, but that that is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. And that that's, I want to do that because I see Christ clearly. And I think that that's, it's almost like the way, the way that Aloysia and Zosima go about it is they, they finally come to that humility of saying, I'm poor in spirit. Now let me look at Jesus. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, they allow Jesus to, to teach them by, by not only his teachings, but just his character and his identity. And then you don't, you're never going to have a, 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 a misunderstanding about Jesus. Like, um, the the what would Jesus do bracelets we're gonna talk about that with the um, the Grand Inquisitor because mm-hmm. it's kind of that chapter is a what would Jesus do uh, imagination uh, um, thought experiment yeah and this is probably a good way to close this really is just kind of with that Grand Inquisitor note that you just mentioned because the Grand Inquisitor chapter is about Jesus calling human beings to this beautiful um, moral purity where you are poor in spirit and you have your motives right, not just your outward actions. Like, all this a high calling, right, um, where you, you prioritize eternity over your material gain in the present. And the Grand Inquisitor says, yeah, that's too hard. People can't do that. People are the worst, Ivan is very pessimistic about people. Elias is very optimistic about people. And Ivan is, he says in his little parable, people are the worst. (laughs) (laughs) And I have to use children as my sympathetic examples because adults are not sympathetic. They probably deserve to suffer. They're the worst. So the Grand Inquisitor says, well, the answer is just tell people what to do and give them plenty of like food, meet their material needs and tell them what to do and don't make them make hard moral choices because they'll make the wrong ones and they, they're incapable. And Christ says, no, like <laughs> I'm calling them to make the hard moral choices. I'm calling them to be perfect as God is perfect. It will not be fully accomplished until eternity. 
when like Dostoevsky says, the law of personality can finally be overcome where you're not just obsessed with your own ego, but it can begin yeah. on earth through the power of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. But, you know, it must have been a weird situation to be in, to live in, say, Russia in the 19th century. It's a Russian Orthodox society, so everyone feels some sort of kinship to the church in some way or another. Everyone's, like, baptized into the church. It's just one church. There's not even competition among different churches, really. So there's talk about cultural Christianity, but then there's so many people who claim some cultural Christianity but aren't filled with the Holy Spirit and aren't living it, and that can make you very jaded toward the church. Anyone who grows up in cultural Christianity has experienced that to some extent, getting jaded toward the church, because you see people kind of claiming it but not really living it Yeah, and with power. When you're bringing up a great point, which, like you said, is a good place to end, is submission to the culture versus submission to the the I. The, the, the being of God in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. When you're submissive to a person, you have a relationship with that person. When you're submissive to the culture, you are just following in the herd of yeah. the culture. And, yeah, and, and ultimately, you can be swayed to go a different direction. And so for all the people that were like, you know wanting um, basically the dissolution of the of the Soviet Union and, and like just just a, um, like Russia to be its own country and have its own government and, and like like basically break down the Soviet um, the Soviet way of doing things and give Russia back to the Russians. Well now they're anti-Russia because Russia is is, you know, trying to take land from Ukraine. And, um, you know, that that's the thing is, like, the culture might shift, but the, 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 the feeling of, like, it's wrong to do this or that, that is actually part of our conscience. Like, God has designed us to have a conscience that says killing someone should be wrong. But then... There are exceptions where it's like there's a time to kill under heaven. And so, um, you know, there's so much mystery. There's so much challenge. And it's really, it it really is just, it's overwhelming to consider in one moment of thought. But if you commit your mind, you know, that's why it's the, the, the first commandment that is so essential when Christ says it is, Love the Lord with all your heart, might, soul, and strength. And so he's not saying that the relationship with God is only bodily. He's not like, oh, I'm going to, like, in my body, I'm going to be clean and, and be pure and, 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 you know, like, be virtuous. But in my mind, I'm going to do my own thing. Or he's not saying, like, in your body you can do whatever you want, but as long as your mind is, like, connected to the truth of the cultural Christianity, then you're good. Or that only your spirit needs to be like, okay, in my spirit, I'll listen to God, but my mind is going to be like malleable to the culture and my body is going to be submissive to my impulses. You know, really what what Dostoevsky does with, with Dmitry Ivan and Alyosha is split the body. 
into three parts. And ultimately, the only one who we really see loving God with his heart, mind, soul, and strength is Alyosha because he starts with his soul. And his soul governs his mind, which governs his body. And Dostoevsky's ability to uh, personify that, that faithfulness to the commandment is really just... I think it gets increasingly remarkable as you read the novel, and we'll talk about it at length with Alyosha in his own episode. But one of the things to look at when you're reading this novel is look at how many situations Alyosha gets in that are extreme emotional situations where you could easily be driven to sin in your heart even if not in your body. Now, some of them are places where you could sit in your body, like when Grushika's sitting on his lap, that could, you know, quickly become a bodily, you know, <laughs> um, situation. And um, and that was what I was really struck by reading it this time. So I, I've only read it through once. Um, I've started it two other times. I made it about halfway each time. Um, but I've got one full reading under my belt. And what I noticed, and, and what we'll talk about, like I said, when we get to Alyosha, is how his faith allows him to be, like Whitney mentioned, in his father's house, seeing his father be sinful and not judge and not um, basically join in the sin and not, and at the same time, not uh, condone the sin. He has so much emotional self-control because of his faith that he is able to be in these incredibly um, toxic, dramatic, emotional, like, situations that would make any person who has no faith just explode in whatever, ang- whatever emotion it is, whether it's anger, um, despair, lust, you know, w- whichever one. And so, so that's something to think about if you're reading it along with us. Uh, just kind of watch Alyosha in action and, and see how his, how his goodness, his faithfulness, his purity of heart, uh, his peacemaking, all of those, those virtues that the Beatitudes speak to, how those are, are um, brought to life and, and really how they can teach you. And obviously they've taught me as well to exist in a sinful world, but to be able to cling to the identity of Christ as, as your identity, because it can be done, it just takes, it, it basically takes continual submission to Christ. And I think Alyosha, when he doesn't do that, we see, like, we see him make a mistake. It's not like he's sinless, but we see him have the right attitude of repentance when he's like, why did I do that? Well, you just experience what it's like to go on a road trip with Adam and me where we're just talking and talking and talking and talking, Um, which we enjoy it. So hopefully you've enjoyed the wide-ranging discussion. So uh, that wraps it for episode one of season three of Summer Reading with the Deals, The Brothers Karamazov by Fyodor Dostoevsky. We look forward to 
swimming this Pacific Ocean <laughs> of a novel with you. And, the ironically uh, named Pacific Ocean is yes. actually not Pacific. <laughs> and uh, we will talk to you on the next episode. We'll see you then. Bye-bye.